Welcome to Service Headline News. I am your host, Marty Smith, and I'm joined by Eric Perrott. What's going on, guys? And Jake Wall. Hey, Marty. Hey, Eric. What's up, Jake? And we're here to bring you the latest headlines and updates pertinent to all service men and women. So sit back, get informed, and have a laugh as the Swearing It Podcast presents Service Headline News. Good to have you back, gentlemen. I'm looking forward to this episode. <laughs> it's going to be a lot of collaborating. Well, could be, could be, could be a yeah. lot of bickering too. <laughs> awesome. Well, let's start us off right. Do you have a day in history for us, Eric? Oh yeah, oh yeah. So sticking with tonight's episode, um, <laughs> this event occurred April eighteenth. 1942, and I'm going to ask you guys if you have any clue, sticking with tonight's episode concerning the top three, our bombers, it's what they, occurred. It's it's the date they first drew the concept of the B-36 Corsair on a napkin. <laughs> in a Not going to let that Brussels. go, are you? All right, now I can do better than that. It's <laughs> the release of Dr. Strangelove. <laughs> good guess no ladies and gentlemen this was the Doolittle raid april 18th oh, 1942 well, no kidding i did, I, I don't know why i didn't think of that. that's right nice during world war ii the u.s army air forces bombing raid on tokyo and other japanese cities lieutenant colonel james Doolittle led 16 b-25 bombers i don't want to hear it from the u.s <laughs> navy aircraft carrier hornet and a spectacular surprise attack that caused little damage, but boosted Allied morale. The raid prompted the Japanese to retain four Army fighter groups in Japan during 42 and 43, when they were badly needed in the South Pacific to protect the homeland. Wow. The attack yeah. also compelled the Japanese. Yeah. The attack also compelled the Japanese to push beyond their originally planned defensive perimeter, thereby increasing the vulnerability of their supply lines. So it had a lot of uh, uh, other results that they weren't even expecting. The biggest one realize, being, I didn't realize they held that much back. Yeah, they they were terrified by the Doolittle raid. Yeah, wow. like, it was all firebombing. Yeah, it removed a lot of air support for all the southern islands. It removed a bunch of of a logistical support. Yeah, yeah, that whole campaign. So it targeted multiple areas of Tokyo, as well as other major Japanese cities, such as Yokohama, Yokosuka, and a couple of others, Osaka and Kobe. Within these areas, primary marks included military facilities, factories, and other industrial centers. So when they found out there was such a big vulnerability to the homeland, they held those back to protect it. <laughs> now, wasn't there, there, I mean, their plan, right, was to take off from the Hornet bomb Japan, and then they were going to land in China, right? Yeah, yes. so they had a couple of airfields assigned in China, but yep. when they were doing the math, they knew damn well when they took off, the best thing they could do was crash in China. Oh, they were never going to make them. Most, they were never going to make it. The most likely thing that was going to happen is they were going to crash in the water. Well, like, you know what happened, Jake? It was is the Hornet was spotted. Yep. They were afraid they, the they were spotted early. Yeah. 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 They couldn't get close enough. That's right. Yep. To make it. So they all were going to ditch. What was interesting, though, is Doolittle gave every 
uh, crew the opportunity to say, no, I'm not going to fly it. And everyone to the man said, nope, we're going with you. He he even had people fighting over who was going to go. Yeah. Trying to get on there, right? Yeah. Yeah. Did they yeah, take one of the guys? Did they take full crews yeah. or did they strip the crews down? No, I think there was still full crews to the aircraft. Because, I mean, you didn't need, yeah. I mean, they took all the guns out, right? They, they, I think, didn't they? Yeah, they took the air to air guns yeah. out and just stripped everything, everything they could possibly get out of those things to get them to take off. Yeah. Um, on that deck of the Hornet. Cause that, that had never been done before. Yeah, that's, yep. that's so ballsy. That is crazy. As a result of this mission, yeah. Doolittle was awarded the Medal of Honor. Yeah. Huh. Wow. It's wow. a big day for us, man. Big day. April 12th, 1942. No. April 18th. Oh, April 18th. Okay. 1942. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Fucking A. So they went from four months. That's nuts, too. Come up with this cockamamie idea, and in four months, you do it. Wow. Yeah. yeah Air Force not, would never allow just, that. They had to strip. <laughs> well, that was the thing. That's Remember how we were talking about the F-4? They had to do the Wild Weasel Project because they were getting their their butts handed yeah, to them by, right. the, by the stamps right. from Russia. Yeah. And they were like, yeah. all right, let's go. And it was a super quick turn where they took f4s and secretly stripped them down fitted them with a back seat invented the weapons officer position invented the radar detection tools and shipped them over to vietnam and said okay let's figure it out as we go yeah yeah we've always done this where it's like the, the people that could see long distance, you know, big, long-term strategic planners are people that are like, eh, that'll never happen. Right. We don't want to waste time. We don't want to waste money. We don't want to waste people on it. And yet, later on in that, in any conflict, a conflict, we're like, hey, we need to make a change now. Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. Right? Remember, I mean, the convoy situation with the IEDs. They yeah. came out with that Rhino system where it was basically a a cell phone jammer on a long, long stick or a long <laughs> metal bar in front of the lead convoy guy. Because they were, send, they were sending signals with their cell phone to detonate Yeah, and they those. were jamming. So it was a cell phone jammer that yeah. was going, you know, 10 yards ahead of the freaking lead convoy jamming. Yeah. signals. Well, you know what the crazy thing with this mission was, was because there were so many B-25s on the deck of the Hornet, the Enterprise had to fly launch and overhead reconnaissance. So it really put both the Hornet and the U.S. Yeah. Enterprise at jeopardy. Yeah. yeah. Because yeah. one's flying overhead cover for one that's trying to launch B-25s. Yeah. So if that thing went south, you could have lost two, two carriers. A yeah. lot, man. And, it, you know, credit to the generals. They're like, okay, Colonel, I think you know what you're doing. I'm going to trust you. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you but, they, but they knew or they had enough foresight to say, if we hit Japan on their home country, yeah, it's going to cause them to flinch and pull back so much. Yeah, yeah. And it's going to send such a message, whether it was a 
successful great bombing raid or not, it's going to send such a message that. It, oh yeah, intimidation for sure. Uh, yeah, it yeah, really, it really, it really crimped their plans for uh, their and offense those, in the Pacific. Yeah, and you those know that um, the the stories of the survivors and how they got out of China and how they got everything um to like an extraction zone yeah is crazy that is uh <laughs> it's an interesting story though kudos to fdr visit. too because fdr is the one that told doolittle find me a way to hit japan yeah yeah that's it. right yeah well, at least that's what the movie said well i believe that occurred roosevelt i think really <clears throat> is the one that said we need to hit them on their own on ground show them they're not uh invulnerable and Doolittle said, "There's a book you by, get uh, me, you get me Ben Affleck and Josh Hartnett. I'll hit, I'll hit." <laughs> if, if you're ever really interested, there's a book called uh, "Target Tokyo" by uh, uh, James Scott. Willie turned me on to this book. Yeah, and it's the story of the Doolittle raid, and so it it goes from right after Pearl Harbor to the attack to the extraction of all the guys. No, very cool. Target Some Tokyo. Of the wounds. Yeah, Target Tokyo by James Scott. Cool. I, I think I, we can all agree that this little raid was paramount in us winning the war against Japan. I really do believe that. Well, it bought us some time, at least, right? Yep. Yeah. Definitely. Yep. Yeah, good choice, and, Eric. You know, if we establish air superiority, that's like we've realized that step number one tends to be that you know because we'd get freedom of movement and freedom of right or freedom of well, action <clears throat> i i can't remember the stat but we haven't had ground troops attack from the air since the 60s i want to say vietnam yeah i don't think but i don't think we've had ground troops attacked by enemy air for that long because we've established air superiority. That's pretty yeah. badass. That's that's good call. Yeah. You know, for a country, that's, a, that's pretty badass. Good day in history, Eric. Awesome. All that right. was one of your better ones, actually. <laughs> speaking of history. You're welcome. <clears throat> speaking of history, the U.S., <clears throat> we're going to rewrite some history here. Uh, from the Air Force Times from last week. Uh, Thule has now been renamed. Its new name, I'm going to try this, but I'm going to spell it first. Its new name is P-I-T-U-F-F-I-K, and it's pronounced <laughs> Bidufik. Bidufik. P-Tufik. P-Tufik. Uh, but it's going to be P-Tufik space base. In an April 6th ceremony at America's northernmost military installation, it is located 695 miles north of the Arctic Circle and 947 miles south of the North Pole on the northwest side of the island of Greenland. Thule is from a Latin word with the same spelling meaning northernmost part of the habitable world. That's pretty good. I never knew that. <laughs> Uh, I don't know why they chose Latin. Out there. Hey, I was way up north. 
Um, Alan Leventhal, the U.S. ambassador to the U.S. ambassador to Denmark, of which Greenland is a territory, said, "We recognize the important role this installation has played in ensuring our countries and all of North America have remained safe and secure. I hope Bidufik will become a symbol of our cooperation in science, climate, and space research." the common defense of our countries and the stability of this amazing part of the world that is so vital for our survival. Let's see. There are around 150 people stationed up there. Uh, it's surrounded by ice for nine months of the year. Uh, the only way in is on privately contracted flights that arrive weekly from Maryland. The military also relies on a fleet of specialized LC-130 transport planes equipped with skis to move cargo. So, <laughs> Why did they rename this thing? That's what I was wondering. So I went to huh. Wikipedia, and the name Pitufik, Pitufik was a hunting village of the Greenlandic Inuits, the Kaanaak region of northern Greenland. <laughs> I, I, I that was pretty good, actually. I, I got a yeah. You pronounced it very well because <laughs> I practiced it like three times. Like I can't say this thing. Uh, of northern Greenland, in which is located, was inhabited for several thousand years, first settled 4,500 years ago by the Paleo-Eskimo peoples migrating from the Canadian Arctic. And then the bad news comes in. Forced relocation. In 1951, the United States was given permission to build Thule Air Base at the site of the settlement. Between 52 and 53... Uh, between 1952 and 1953, all residents of Pitufik back then and nearby Dundas were forcibly relocated 130 kilometers north, north, even colder, <laughs> further north, to the new town of Kaanaak, commonly known at the time as New Kaanaka <laughs> or New Thule. <laughs> I had no, I had to say it three more times where people were forced to live in tents from May 1953 until November of the same year, well into the polar winter, while the 27 new houses were constructed for them. They stuck them in tents. <laughs> Should have had heaters, right? Uh, the total cost of the relocation amounted to about 1.5 million U.S. dollars. Which more than half covered by, or more than half of that was covered by the American side. So Denmark and the U.S. paid that out. So we got a new name because we forced those people off the property. <laughs> Something we were really good at from you know the first time we the Columbus landed, we started pushing Indians west. So yeah, that's what we do. We're pretty the good indigenous at it. people. We're yeah. pretty good at it. Um, but it's Greenland, right? I mean, they're like, oh, people are living there. Well, why don't we just do it like five miles? No, we want that spot. <laughs> <laughs> like, what, what's the? It's a it's an Arctic plane. You seen the view? We're taking this spot. <laughs> Look at those lights. We're not missing yeah, it's over there. Guys, More you gotta light. go. We got tents for you though. <laughs> Crazy. So, so anyway. Helpful. They renamed it, I guess, to ease the guilt of moving those guys out. But it's not like we force marched them. You know, it wasn't Trail of Tears <laughs> <No>. and Thule. <laughs> it may have been for them. They're you like, don't know. 
Hey, we that's got only the, because they froze before they hit the ground. <laughs> yeah, maybe. <laughs> they just, cubes. They just <laughs> slide them. <laughs> oh, we got these new tents. Oh, We're man. calling them Thule tents. And you can get a bike rack. Do you want a bike rack? A Thule bike rack? <laughs> we'll give you that. Which is kind of funny that Thule, the last place you think about riding a bike, is now the name of bike racks on every car you see driving around. That's ironic, isn't it? That's ironic. That's ironic. <laughs> okay. Uh <laughs> <laughs> Moving on to military.com. A GOP lawmaker wants to raise the military's minimum wage. And that's kind of a misnomer. Not minimum wage. It's the the wage of the lowest guy, right? Um, but Republican lawmaker Representative Mike Garcia, a Republican out of California, is renewing an effort to boost the salary of the lowest paid service members. Under his proposal. <laughs> okay. Remember acronyms, guys? Uh, think of the word raise. R A I S E. What acronym could you make out of that? Or what title could you make out of that? Well, this guy did it, right? So his act is called the quote, raising annual income of service members by enhancing minimum base payout <laughs> so the r a i s e raising annual income of service members by enhancing minimum can we identify payout. the think can we identify the think tank that came up with that oh i yeah it. i don't know <laughs> <laughs> that's a good one senator congressman good it's one. a think tank oh. uh he's reintroduces or he's introduces several times right uh over the past years he reintroduced last week that service members would be entitled to a base pay rate of at least $31,200 per year or the equivalent of $15 per hour for the 40-hour work week. Now, didn't we talk uh, a couple of weeks ago about why go in the military when you're making less than the guy working at Burger King on the on the base? Absolutely. Yeah, we did. I, was, I was trying to look for that soundbite because I wanted to play it because I'm like, look how prescient we were. Uh <laughs> Congressman, on time. Congressman Garcia said to build the military of the future that will deter aggression from China and other adversaries, we must be able to recruit and retain qualified Americans to serve in our military. The simple reality is that we can't do that if your local fast food chain is paying more than the armed services. <laughs> Boom. Look at that. <laughs> Talk about on point. You must have been listening to the podcast. Holy cow! That's where he got. Uh, right now, the most <laughs> right now the most junior members of the military make about twenty two thousand in base pay annually, not including any stipends such as BAH. So that's just base pay. Uh, the minimum wage in Garcia's bill roughly amounts to what an E four, with at least two years of experience, makes right now. Sounds good. I mean, they should they should make especially if they're thinking. Um, What's your idea for getting people in? How about tattoos on the neck? Yeah, they're in. How about uh, uh, ponytails? Yeah, you're in. How about giving them more pay? Ah, shut that guy up. Get him out of here. <laughs> you know, a livable wage is helpful. Uh, yeah. yeah, and, the, and well, he brings... Especially when we're talking, we're constantly, we're talking about WIC. And yeah, food WIC stamps. Is a, right. 
Yeah, food stamps and WIC is like a big thing, you know. WIC, in the, WIC has been a big thing for a long stuff. time. Yeah, I remember having soldiers yeah. in the army back in the early '90s who were on WIC. Yep. So, and he addresses that. So good on him. Um, it's coming up. Service members of all ranks are on track right now to receive a 5.2% base pay raise in 2024, which will wow, be the 5. biggest 2. annual increase in two decades. But, you know, that's like, oh, we gave one that was 5.0. This one's 5.2. What a big difference maker, right? Yeah. But lawmakers have expressed interest in reforming pay scales and allowances beyond the annual raise amid concerns that junior enlisted members are struggling to afford basic necessities such as food and housing, especially given high inflation. Garcia, Congressman Garcia went on to say, some 23,000 service members, many of whom also provide for their families, rely on food stamps just to make ends meet. That is 23,000 yep. soldiers too many. Now, here's a, here's a great quote. If the government is paying for our service members to live on food stamps, we may as well pay them on the front end through base pay. And I was like, yeah, <laughs> that's a great philosophy, right? I mean, if you're yeah. gonna if you're gonna spend that money, government money, to get food stamps, well, shit, yeah, give them a little bit more pay or up their BAH, right? You know what the problem with that though is, depending on where they're stationed, what installation they're at. You know, if you're here in Denver, inflation's much higher here. You're still going to be below the poverty line. You are, right. Even with that raise, a 5% is not going to make a difference. Yeah, you can't rent an apartment. No, go somewhere maybe like Mississippi or Alabama or something, maybe. Right, right, right. Maybe, maybe. Maybe. Um, Garcia is a member of the House Appropriations Committee. He's introduced his proposal several times in recent years as an amendment to the annual defense spending bill. Last year, it got voted down with most Democrats opposing and most Republicans supporting, of course. While Democrats said <clears throat> said they agreed with the sentiment behind Garcia's amendment, they argued it was a piecemeal approach that could negatively affect other quality of life issues such as housing, since the raise would have needed to be offset with other funding. So they're not going to give a raise to these guys in the military because now they're going to play... Yeah. Uh, Oh, well, what are you going to draw down to free the money up for the military? Well, this also, if you think about this, we, we've we had conversations about our retirement and how there's a difference between base pay and all your benefits, right? Yeah. If we got paid counting all of our benefits, can you imagine what our retirement level would be back? be like also the new blended retirement which is basically a 401k with two percent match initially right right and it goes all the way up once you've been in for a couple years it'll go up to a 10 percent match of your base pay only but you have to contribute 10 percent yeah you can't get the 10 percent you get those what you junior that are already on WIC yeah. are like hurting. Right. And and there's a one quote here about the blender retirement. For an E4 with four years of service contributing five thousand dollars of his or five percent of his base pay equals over three thousand dollars being saved each year. <laughs> Jesus. Wow. And that's that's they're like, oh, look at this. Oh, this guy's rolling <laughs> it. Yeah. 
at E4 at four years of service, they're only going to match 5%. Yeah. And they only have to contribute. The government's going to only contribute $3,000. It's nothing. Hmm. It's not. That's your withdrawal penalty. Yeah. Yeah. And now look at that. Like, for a lot of people, that pension or retirement was a huge deal. Right? Yeah. Right. I know at 10 years, at 12 years, I was like, nope, I'm not getting out now. I'm going all the way. <laughs> well, that you is know? that is the first decision point, right? It was like, well, you already did over 10 years. Might as well go all the way. But then the right. real one uh, is, you know, when you get about 14, 15, <laughs> especially when they were offering yeah. that early out or that early retirement at a yeah. lesser rate, yeah. um, that one's, you know, that one you got to go at that point, right? You got to well, think about it. Uh, Pentagon officials have said pay and benefits updates need to be examined more comprehensively, pointing to a study already underway known as the Quadrennial Review of Military Compensation. That study, which is required by law, is meant to review whether pay and benefits are keeping pace with an evolving economy. That study must be worthless because I don't think it's ever kept pace with an evolving economy. You know? In terms of looking at junior enlisted ranks, we have and we continually assess what bonuses, benefits, other incentives may apply to them. Navy Undersecretary Aaron Eric Raven said at a hearing last month. Now, here's the here's the one quote that makes me think. I would have concerns about pulling out several rates for a general pay raise because it could cause issues of pay compression, which is an interesting way to say it. Pay compression compared to higher rates. So I think what he's saying is if you take an E1 and you bump his pay up to what an E4 makes, good. Good for that E1, E2. What about the E4? You have to bump (laughs) his pay up because of the rank, right? I mean, you can't have them both making the same amount. Everybody starts to rank pay. Your entire rank structure has to be adjusted. It's got to chuckle up, right? It's got to, it's got to. That's absolutely. You know, because otherwise, which is probably deserved. Uh, but here's another thought experiment. You want to do this thought experiment with me? If you, were, if you, <laughs> you're going to do it, captured, okay. captured audience. Uh, <laughs> if you were given a choice, if you could get a higher base pay throughout all the years that you're in, but your disability is going to be cut or it's going to be harder to get. Would you take that deal? I don't think I would. I I don't know because we never, you can't ever rely on the VA disability ratings. True. Right. Right. And that can be taken away. It's constantly under review. Right. You know, it can be taken away in the first four or five years. And it and could be up to the doctor. It could be up to the VSO. Uh, yep. You know, you you get some guys on a good day. Uh, you know, my brother went over to Afghanistan and got like twenty percent of all the jumps and all the hikes and all the crap that he did. Yeah. Um, and you know, other guys, you get a doctor on a good day, and he's like, "Well, yeah, you're you're easy seventy. Yeah, you got." Well, here's gnarly- the other side of the coin. Here's the other side of the coin. Yeah. What good does the little bit of increase in your basic paycheck when you were 20 you just came in 
is it really going to have that much of an impact on what you did as an E1 through E6? Well, and that's I a good point, too. Would. But if you're talking about going from, uh, let's say. <clears throat> but let's, with that blended retirement, that could be the difference between, you know, tens of thousands of dollars. Over the course of a mm. career, yeah. Over the course of a career, yes. And the one thing is that when I, if you get out at four years, you get to take that with you. You are automatically vested. And you are unlikely to get disability and all that other pay anyway, right? Yep. So let's, let's do this then. His proposal takes uh, a junior enlisted pay from 22,000 a year annually to 31,000. So almost, almost 10 grand more a year. Would you take 10 grand more a year over the course of your career at every rate? You're getting 10 grand more. If uh, there will be like, yeah, it's going to be unlikely for you to get, you know, disability pay. Would you do that? Hmm. I, I That's, think people would. You think you would, Jake? I think a lot of people will. Cash hmm. and, you know. Well, if you think back to when you were E4s and E5s and you were going paycheck to paycheck, probably, right? As we probably all were, um, you know, 10 grand more a year could make a difference, right? Yeah, that's true. Especially at, at, not at knowing that level at that level. Yeah. Right? And not knowing the impact of this disability money for a right. US yeah, sure, career. Sure. Yeah. Right. Right. But I don't know. I'll take the ten grand a year and then work on not being able to sleep. I'm still trying to get that <laughs> VA money. <laughs> so anyway, at least at least they're thinking about it. It'll probably get voted down, which is pretty stupid with all the other uh, recruiting incentives they're doing. But it does open up a bigger problem. You know, we just give a flat raise to we just raise the pay scale for everyone in the military. Especially when you're yeah. talking about that review is supposed to look at is a keeping pace with the economy. And then you go, okay, here's a guy 15 years in. Is he what a 15-year professional in whatever industry? Is he in line with making that? I know they're not doing that because you know he's mm. underpaid. Or he or she is underpaid compared to the civilian oh, oh, yeah. side. Yeah. <clears throat> And then you roll a career like space, they're severely underpaid <laughs> compared to what the space contracts are. Anyway. So he's trying to push it forward. Uh, so that's good. Good thing. He'll probably get voted down. Good on but, him. Uh, who knows? Good on him. Okay. So this is a bizarro story from the NavyTimes.com. <laughs> the, title, the headline is Sailor's Killer to be removed from Arlington thanks to a new law. So this is crazy. Apparently, this uh, former Navy guy, Andrew Chabral, he's deceased now, right? He was uh, uh, he did uh, a career in the Navy. Let me just read it instead of trying to summarize it. That'd probably be easier. <laughs> After 30 years in a place of honor at Arlington National Cemetery, the remains of a former Navy lieutenant who kidnapped and murdered a sailor uh, will be disinterred. So how did that happen, you ask? Well, 
former Lieutenant Andrew Chabrol. I don't know how to say his name. Chabrol. Chabrol. C-H-A-B-R-O-L. He secured above ground burial for himself in the Nate, which is isn't that rare to get above ground? That's like mausoleum. No, they stuff, have those. Yeah, they have all those mausoleums. Okay. Well, he secured <laughs> above ground burial for himself in the nation's most revered veteran cemetery while awaiting his execution by the Commonwealth of Virginia in 1993 for the murder of Petty Officer Second Class Melissa Harrington. At the time, the Navy simply did not have legal grounds for excluding him since he completed his service honorably. So he retired or compl- <coughs> completed his service and then went back and killed this uh, petty officer second class. So after he was out. Wow. And what the Navy and the VA, uh, all those who run who's get who gets into Arlington, they just looked at his 214 and go, show's honorable discharge. He's good to go. And it was like, he's sitting on death row. And they're like, yeah, but his service. And so. Was honorable. It was honorable. So he was wow. put to death for this crime. He yeah. passed. Uh, or he was put to death for this crime. And they buried him in Arlington. But uh, as news got, uh, somebody got a hold of this, Representative Jackie Spire, a Republican out of California. She got wind of this and put a, I don't know, she put a movement together, but her and some of the surviving members of Melissa Harrington, the petty officer second class who was murdered, uh, put a move together to start making noise. Like, why is this guy who killed our daughter in Arlington National Cemetery? So what they did... uh, they put this movement together and they put it into the 2023 National Defense Authorization Act. They put mm-hmm. this specifically, which is crazy about what's tucked into each piece of legislation, especially something that's this specific was put into that National Defense Act and passed. Wow. So, um, it was passed in December 2022. It was a provision introduced by outgoing rep Jackie Spire from California that requires the secretary of the army to remove Chabral from Arlington by September 30th and transfer his remains to next of kin. Or if no one responds to the army's request to dispose of the remains as deemed appropriate, they put that specific thing into that national defense authorization act. With the and this is for the only, that only that one incident. And that's yes. why. Wow. (laughs) They said they were trying to make it more general, but they decided to guess it and just put it just for that guy. One guy in in legislation. Congress like an awful lot of money and time. I I know. (laughs) But when those resources, yeah, when those resources could be used for something else. Well, what else is tucked into those bills? That's what's scary, right? I'm sure there's a ton of it. I didn't know they could do something that specific, but they did. Congresswoman Spire said it was appalling to me to think that an officer in the Navy could sexually harass, then kidnap, then rape, and then murder a sailor and get buried at a national cemetery, which is supposed to honor our war heroes and our dead. So he has no place in that cemetery. Um, I concur with her. Yeah, I I, I think everybody would, right? Yeah. You want to hear what his crime was? 
<laughs> I thought I just did. Harrington, Melissa Harrington. She's the petty officer second class. She was just 27 at the time of death, had complained to Navy superiors about Chabrol's intimidating behavior when the two served together in a Virginia Beach unit. The 34-year-old officer, Chabrol, was allowed to complete his term of service and leave the Navy. In 1991, he kidnapped Melissa Harrington from her home, bringing her to his own house, where he and an accomplice raped and tortured her. When she managed to free one of her hands and hit hit Chabrol, he, quote-unquote, went berserk, according to his own testimony, and strangled her to death. Chabrol was quickly arrested after Harrington's disappearance and her body was discovered, rolled into a rug inside his home. Court testimony would reveal that he had been plotting revenge against Harrington for months in a journal calling his plan, quote-unquote, Operation Nemesis. He named his own plan. And he journaled about it. And he journaled about it. (laughs) Wow. Uh, Lastly, Judy Farmer, a retired Navy senior chief petty officer who began agitating for Chabrol's removal from Arlington after learning about the case in 2018, told Navy Times that the disinterment would bring solace and relief, not just for those who knew and loved Melissa Harrington, but also for sailors who sustained sexual assaults or trauma while serving. She went on to say Andrew Chabrol felt that it was his last act of thumbing his nose at Melissa Harrington to be buried in Arlington. So it's nice for her to get the last word. And I think they were both buried in Arlington. Mm. That blows my mind. She deserves it. He's that's oh, just crazy. Jesus. So, what's that? Get him out of there. I, yep. Uh but but for him to go in in the first place. Come on, yeah. you process watchers, you know? I mean. You really That's just a broke... throw up your hands and go, well, his DD 214 says honorable. You know, it's... break down a common sense. Break down a uh, common sense. Nuts, nuts, nuts. Anyway. Uh okay, we have reached that part of the show where we choose our all military selection. This week, this week, it is propeller driven bombers. Got that, guys? Propeller-driven bombers. <laughs> yeah. So our yep. standings to date are, I have two wins, Jake has two wins, and Eric has four wins. Hey, now. And you know what? I think the first win was just a gimme because we were just oh, experimenting. You no, you're not taking away my my. And I also now. think last week was a gimme too. You know, because you jumped on the M2 real quick, the real quick the M2 machine gun, which was clearly. I chose there. that from the get go. I, I should have taken the gal. You probably <laughs> should have. That was a mistake by you. That's At least true. he would have had competition. <laughs> <laughs> Don't worry, Either he's way. out of the running this week. So. Uh, <laughs> Uh, who won? Who who won last week? Oh, Eric won. So you get to go last. So you go last, Eric. Yeah. That's a good first. I'll let him. It's a good thing. No, because I'm I'm dying. I'm going to give him a little bit more time to read up. So you, gotta... <laughs> you can practice reading the article. 
Oh. All right. I chose a, I chose a B-17 Flying Fortress from Boeing. The rugged B-17 heavy bomber was developed as a strategic bomber in the 1930s. And it was my favorite bomber as a kid making models. And it's the coolest bomber looking, you know, out there. It proved efficient enough to where it was. Hey, hey, it was proved efficient enough to where it was used in every theater of the war. It was legendary for its ability to sustain heavy damage in battle and bolstered by its nearly self-sufficient firepower. B-17s were more, most often used for daytime raids over Germany, as well as to wreak havoc on enemy shipping in the Pacific. It dropped more bombs than any other aircraft during World War II. More <laughs> bombs than any other aircraft. And it is... I agree. And is the let's, third... Let's caveat that. This is a heavy ah, bomber. It's the third most produced bomber of all time. All right. Had a crew of 10. <laughs> its max weight was 65,500 pounds. Had a four uh, cyclone turbo supercharged. That's that's like every word for an engine you can shove in at one yeah. thing. Turbo yeah. supercharged radial engines, 1,200 horsepower each. Its maximum speed was 287 miles per hour. Uh, its range was 2,000 miles while carrying a 6,000-pound bomb load. Uh, service ceiling was 35,000 feet, and its rate of climb was 900 feet a minute. That's pretty damn good for oh. a heavily laden, heavy bomber. Uh, had How many 13, were you 13 M2 machine guns on it. So it was truly a flying fortress. It served in Europe, of course, with the 8th Air Force, but it also served with Doolittle's 12th Air Force in North Africa, as well as being stationed in Australia in support of the defense of the Philippines. It was because of the B-17 and its durability that the Allies were able to conduct precision daylight bombing raids on Germany and bring that machine to its knees eventually, after it got a lot of them shot out. <laughs> shot out from underneath. Yeah. Famous for the raids on Schweinfurt, uh, Regensburg, and Bremen. And here's the topper. Many B-17 crew members received military honors, and 17 B-17 crew members received the Medal of Honor. 17. I did not know that. Best bomber ever made. B-17. Go ahead and or, be it. Or, or they got into such shitty situations that it required excessive heroism. On a which, cons- which they obviously displayed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's on the members, not on the crappy equipment. Oh, so I'm sure all the, the other bombers had that many Medal of Honor winners, right? How, how many? How many Medal of Honor winners on the B-36 Corsair? Hey, no. we're not. Don't go there yet. Don't go there. Hey, Marty, how many were made? I, I'm sorry, I missed that one. Uh I think it. Was, I, I can't remember. I think it was like five, almost six hundred. I think. Uh, a thousand, six thousand. Uh, yes. If you knew the answer, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I honestly don't know. I was just. Getting... I'll give you the. I'll give you the answer I gave for a career, sir. I'll get back to you on that. Yeah. <laughs> I was giving giving ammunition to prove that the B twenty five Mitchell oh, the is man. the better bomber. Same era, same timeline. The only bomber named after an individual. Right, 
Billy, Billy Mitchell, Mitchell, who, you know, unfortunately lost the best generals list in this movie. <laughs> but not by much, actually. Not, not by, by much. much, but changed tactics in the bombing world and the air and air world to this day, right? So the Mitchell is the one like Eric brought up earlier. That's the one, the bomber that ran off, wasn't designed for an aircraft takeoff or a carrier takeoff, but yet they retrofitted it as mission needed, put it on the Hornet, and then took off from the Hornet to do the Doolittle raids. Yeah. Yeah, that's very right. cool. This, this, yep. one's cap- this one's capable of um, payloads of, come on, man, you freaking took my shit away. Payload <laughs> of 2,400 pounds, uh, carrying over 1,200 miles at 300 miles per hour. But the Mitchell, you the number built was 9,800. And you oh. mentioned that um, <clears throat> the, and probably because it got shot down significantly less than the other one. But <laughs> um, it was in, once again, in every theater in World War II and excelled and carried on operations for four decades after World War II. Oh, that's a that's a killer to the beast. That's a long record. Nearly ten thousand were built in a variety of different forms. They actually experimented for a while and stripped it down and made it a reconnaissance aircraft. Really? Because it was durable and and reliable. Um, They did the island hopping campaign. It enabled the island hopping campaign uh, throughout the Asia Pacific area. It was yeah. in Middle East and Italy, right? We 380th, Corsica Blue, that kind of thing, right? Yeah. The RAF actually flew Mitchells. The Russians flew Mitchells. Yeah, they all flew the B-17s too. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. Here's one little tidbit that might be entertaining to you on the durability of this aircraft, right? The Mitchell, um, incredibly sturdy. I'm going to pull an Eric here and read it verbatim. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> there was there was one B-25C that it was assigned to the 321st Bomb Group, and they nicknamed it Patches because <laughs> after every single time, the oh shit, good nickname, it, yeah. They would paint the flak holes with primer yellow. By the time this thing got done. It had been belly landed six times. It completed over 300 missions, had 400 patch holes. And the frame of this aircraft was so distorted from battle damage that to fly it straight and level, it required eight degrees of left aileron trim and six degrees of right rudder trim. Just to fly at level. So it literally crab walked across the wow. sky because it was so bent. But that's just going to say like the durability of this aircraft, the versatility of this this light bomber is amazing. And it did change much that's like true. yeah, much like uh Marty's, but it did change the method and and that war significantly yeah ah that's a good one 
I mean, yeah, it didn't. It wasn't the Enola Gay. It wasn't that. Yeah, true. Okay. Right. But wasn't a Memphis claim, Bell. Right. Its claim to fame was definitely flying off the Hornet. So that's a big plus, <laughs> without a doubt. That is. I mean, yeah, that's ultimately what that that ship did. That was pretty damn impressive. But that's probably one of the singular acts of the century, really. Yeah, I would agree. Yeah, I mean that's that's pretty big. Huh. Yeah, that's a good one. All right, guys. Both good did choices. You know the, the actual Enola Gay? I don't know. Did he? What did what <laughs> now we're on our seat, edge of our seat. I'm excited. <laughs> so I was torn. I picked an aircraft that apparently did not meet the criteria of the best bomber. You mean of actually not was, dropping a was, bomb? That's correct. Yes. However, I, I do want to honorably mention this aircraft uh, because of what it was going to do and what it was designed to do. So during World War II, the, the U.S. was concerned about long-range bombing. Germany was kicking the snot out of the U.K. They thought you know, Britain was going to fall. So the idea of flying from east coast of Canada to Berlin was becoming a main goal, a main objective, because they knew they were going to have to hit Berlin long range. So the powers to be came up with the design of the B-36 Peacemaker. Ten engines, six turning, four burning, four of the jet propelled came in later, started with six. The slogan of six turning and four burning through the jet engines were typically only used for takeoff, but they're never required. My bottom line here, guys, is this aircraft was in service for 10 years with a nuclear deterrent against the bear from 49 to 59. Though it did not drop a bomb in anger, if had it done its job, I would have thought that it would have been the best bomb. On to my second choice. <laughs> wait, wait, Eric. The the cool thing about that peacemaker is that the engines are mounted backwards. That's correct. I mean, it's a prop plane, but yep. on on all the other prop planes, the propellers on the front of the wing. Yeah, and on this peacemaker, the propellers actually on the back of the wing. And like it, it it was. Uh, Two times the size of the B-17, or I'm sorry, the B-29. Yeah. And the payload was twice the load, and the range was twice the range of the B-29. Pretty impressive aircraft, but I know it did not meet our criteria. So, my selection for meeting the criteria was the B-24, the Great Liberator. This aircraft was um, part of World War II in that same air. And I just want to read a quick story for you. <laughs> Three squadrons of B-24 Liberators, Goliath four-engine 56,000-pound bombers streak towards Germany to strike Hitler's vaulted Luftwaffe. The reason I'm reading it is B-24s had participated in the first attack on German soil, bombing a submarine yard in Williams-Heldenshaven. That was Germany. So the first bombing of Germany was from a liberator. Okay, first bomb dropped, B-24. Pretty amazing. Turning the tide in Europe, conceived by Consolidated Aircraft, the Lockheed Martin Legacy Company, 
The B-24 prototype was designed to fly faster and carry a larger payload than the U.S. Army Air Corps' B-17 Flying Fortress. Well, was it? It was just Lockheed back then, was it? Or was it Martin? It was Lockheed Martin Legacy. Oh, it was the latest Lockheed. You're correct. Consolidated yeah. Aircraft Company, actually. Yeah, yeah. Okay. In time, the B-24 would boast a long, tapered wing atop its fuselage, which allowed impressive long-range cruising capabilities. The B-24 could reach 290 miles per hour and carry a 5,000-pound bomb load for 17,000 miles, giving it a longer range, greater speed, and bigger payload than its B-17 cousin. Wait, how far did you say its range was? 1,700 miles. Oh, 17. You said, oh, I thought you said 17,000. I was like, Jesus. No, 1,700. <laughs> I may have said 17,000, but it was 1,700. All right. Well, that sounds less than the B-17. Sounds what? like it carries less than the B-17. That's not what it says here, my friend. Don't. Uh, Range don't of the B-17, 2,000 miles with a 6,000-pound bomb load. Uh, B-24 can reach 290 miles per hour and carry a 5,000-pound bomb load for 1,700 miles. Yeah, it's carrying less less bombs. So it can this carry- says giving it a longer range, greater speed, and a bigger payload than its B-17 cousin. I think that I think that's inaccurate. <laughs> Although retired by the end of the war, the B-24 saw service in every theater of the conflict from Africa to Germany and India to the Pacific Islands. In total... A stunning 18,482 B-24s were produced to wage war against the Axis power. No other American combat aircraft in history was produced on such a large scale. Yeah, the B-24 only made, they only made 12,000. But that's because they were so durable, they didn't need to make that many. They were falling out of the air by all the flak, man. You don't need to build them when they're still flying. I don't know if we're going to find an answer on this one. That's <laughs> tough. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Continue Might on. Open it up to the public again. I'm, wa- I'm waiting for the Medal of Honor winners of the B-24s. So. Oh, yeah. All right. Well, maybe I'll search that for you. <laughs> you Google that right here. Okay. Continue. Marty, and Marty, you got what? 17. Oh, okay. 17. <laughs> That's a pretty good number. <laughs> well, it's amazing when you know I've seen some of those documentaries and all that stuff. And that air war, especially the bombers, fifty-seven thousand casualties. Yeah, that's unbelievable. In one career field, you know what I mean? Yeah. All right, finish out. What else do you have on the second place B twenty four? That's third. Oh, (laughs) we're going to have to have an outside source choose this one. B 24 does look good. I do. Yeah. Actually, all three airplanes, this is the closest one because I can't. I mean, I'm going to stick with the B 17 because that's always been my plane since a kid. Uh, But the stats in different areas for each aircraft are pretty undeniable. Agreed. Each of them have has a, a very good story. Each of them. Okay. Well, we'll throw it to the listeners, and hopefully, we get some comments. Tell us who you think is the winner of the all military propeller bomber between the B seventeen, the B twenty four, and the B twenty five. And B thirty six. B thirty six. B thirty six. 
is with the way of Douglas the Camel, baby. Eric's comment of the first one to bomb Germany. Whatever, it's connected. All right, <laughs> campaign in Europe. You didn't no. have to retrofit anything, risk two naval vessels, and just to barely throw it off at a ship. Don't backpedal um, now. The aircraft stepped up mainland Tokyo and performed with, its mission hitting Germany, man. With the best bet, they knew taking off that the best bet is they're going to crash in China somewhere. <laughs> We're not talking about the crew. We're talking about the plane. I'm talking about that plane was flown to the very, very edge. That's true. That Agreed. plane was, was stripped. It was, it was flown beyond its edge. Really? Yeah. Taken, yeah. taken to so far that it was, I mean, it was well beyond its capabilities. And here's the other thing with that mission. It had very little impact on its targets, whereas oh, strategic, my yeah, strategic. B-24 took out a submarine pen in Germany. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now, if you said it hit several moving submarines, I'd be like, "Fucking, that's, that's, <laughs> that's no mess, right?" Yeah, took took out the pen, though. Took out where it stored submarines. The static. Yeah. Pen. That's a stationary base. <laughs> well, that's what bombers are supposed to do. Hit stationary targets. <laughs> we didn't have hardly any intel of mainland Japan. Oh, the only thing we had was a couple of guys five years ago that were looking around. As liaison <laughs> and drawing maps and shipping them back to do it. Hey, we couldn't have done the daylight raid without the B seventeen. A daylight raid, daylight precision <laughs> bombing, That's because it couldn't handle going at night. Yeah, they're just dropping bombs all over the place, like the Liberator. I mean, like the Mitchells. Hey, we the way the some water. Were there subs parked there at one, one time? Yep, <laughs> got him. By the way, the, the Liberator was known for its precision bombing much better than the 17. For everybody. <laughs> <laughs> All right, listeners, it's up to you to help settle this debate. Please let us know which bomber is our all-military selection. <laughs> In-depth. 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 On behalf of all of us here, I'd like to thank you for listening today. Please like, share, subscribe, and let us know how we did in the comments. And please vote on your choice for the all-military propeller bomber. And as always, make sure to download the next episode for more service headline news. Man, (laughs) thanks for the week, and I'll see you next week. Good night, fellas. Hey, Eric, I think um, the reason you like that other bomber so much is because you find so much similarities between it and you. It's all show. And real performance. <laughs> Maybe that's true. <laughs> and and like the B thirty six, Eric is about to be retired too. <laughs> Sticks burning, four turning, baby. <laughs> yep. Thanks All for right. listening. We'll see you next week. <laughs>